Wednesday nights we've been uh, studying Second Peter, and uh, some of the things that are in the very first verse have been so uh, interesting to me that uh, I thought I would share a little bit of with with you. Uh, but those of you who come on Wednesday, I'm not going to re-preach it. Okay, that's not the the idea. But but Peter's writing, this, this probably was the last book written in the New Testament. And, and Peter's writing, and he makes this statement. He says, he, he describes himself as a, uh, as a uh, bondservant and an apostle of Jesus. And so he's writing as an apostle. And he says, I'm writing this to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours. In other words, what he's saying is he's writing this to those who have the faith, the same faith that the apostles have. I thought that that was great. And, and then he, he goes and he tells us that we've received it, that God has granted it to us. It says in his divine power, he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've been saved. You've been given the faith of the apostles, the disciples, God has granted to you everything you need, everything to be and to live in the power of godliness. Uh, he goes on, there's some other stuff in there. And, <clears throat> and then he says this, For by this he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What in the world could that mean? We are partakers of the divine nature. It doesn't mean that we become gods. It doesn't become, but we can become where we act like God acts, where we act like Jesus acts. And, uh, and you know, it's inc that, that's the only thing I can figure out that he means by having the divine nature. He has given us his divine nature. But then he says, you need to apply all diligence and adding to your faith. You know, God's given us the faith. He's given us the privilege of being his children. He's given us the privilege of being godly people, of living according to his moral excellence. But then he says, it's up to you to supply some of this stuff. And he gives a list here. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. There's eight things that he, he mentions there. That he says, hey, God's given you everything you need. You supply these things. And I just got to, to, to thinking about that. Uh, as we studied it on Wednesday night and we thought about it on Wednesday night, I got to, to thinking about that and, and just asked myself, what would that look like? You know, those are all religious words. Those are all theological words. What would that look like in practicality? If I was to be more like Jesus... What would it look like? What would you see? What would I see in you if we were going to be more like Jesus? And if we start applying these things to our lives, would we become more 
like Jesus. And so Paul said in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that's this passage that's here. Don, shut the light off just, just for a minute. We're not going to use the PowerPoint very long. But there are a few things I want you to, to see. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sharing in his sufferings becoming like him and then he says in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead Paul said I want to become like Christ I want to know what it's like to be like Christ all the way to death and resurrection from the dead and as I was thinking about that I remembered a song that from when I was a kid uh I don't know that I've heard anybody sing it in a long, long time. But uh, I thought about calling Brother Mike and saying, hey, let's sing that one this morning. We can sing it next week if you know it. If you don't know it, don't, don't worry about it. But uh, the title of it is More Like Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry, More About Jesus. It's not exactly the same. I'm talking about being more like Jesus. This is talking about knowing more about Jesus. But as we know more about Jesus, we can be more like Jesus as we apply those traits to our lives. And it says, go ahead, Sid, there more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show. That's the first clue. We can show grace to others like he's shown to us. More of his saving fullness, more of his love who died for me. The, the chorus goes like this. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness, see. More of his love who died for me. The second verse is more about Jesus. Let me learn. More of his holy will discern. Wouldn't it be good if we could understand the will of God the way, God, the way Jesus understood the will of God? That would happen if we were more like him. Spirit of God, my teacher be. The Spirit would teach us like it led Jesus all throughout his life on the earth, showing the things of Christ to me. The third verse says, More about Jesus in his word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every line, making each faithful saying mine. And then the fourth verse, More about Jesus on his throne, riches and glory all his own, more of his kingdom's sure increase. More of his coming, Prince of Peace. And then I have one more thing on here I want to show you. As I thought about those things, here's a prayer I would like for us to, to remember and uh, use it over these next weeks as we look at these things about Jesus and it goes like this Lord please show me the way today show me some aspect of your greatness I tend to overlook show me what makes you smile and what makes you sad show me people I can touch with your love show me who I need to forgive and from whom I should seek forgiveness. 
And right now, I especially need you to show me where my walk and my talk don't match. And then thank you for showing yourself by sending your son, Jesus. Amen. That middle one that says, the third one says, show me what makes you smile and what makes you sad. When uh, ever I pick the kids up from school, I don't even have to ask the question anymore. I just say to Soren, okay, Soren, you know what I'm going to ask you? And he says, yes. What made me smile today? And that's my question. What made you smile today? And at first he, he, uh, he couldn't answer that. But now if you ask him, he's got something every day that he tells you made, made him smile. Sometimes it's something that a, a teacher said. Sometimes, you can turn the lights on, Don. Sometimes it's something that uh, uh, one of his friends said or did. Sometimes, once in a while, he tells me a story that uh, somebody said. But uh, it's a lot of fun. And I got to this thinking, you know, if it helps me to know my grandkids by knowing what makes them smile, wouldn't it help me to know Jesus if I knew what made him smile? And what made him sad? He needs to show me those things. What makes my God glad? And what makes him sad? And so this morning, I want us to look at the first thing that, that I could think of. Um, and uh, Jesus could handle pressure. You know that? Jesus lived in a pressure cooker. And he could handle the pressure. If we looked at the ways that he handled pressure, would we look, be able to handle the things that pressure us in our lives better? In Mark chapter 3, we read these words. In verse 7, And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. Remember that phrase, pressed about him in order to touch him. You know, in today's world, sometimes we just think that we are overcome with pressure, and we're not sure how we're going to keep the lid on everything. Jennifer and I had an experience yesterday where we were driving in the car, and the phone began to ring. Well, you know, used to, it's just a simple thing. The phone rings, you pick it up and say hello. But if you're driving in the car, and your phone's connected to Bluetooth, and your car's connected to Bluetooth, and your phone starts ringing, where do you answer it? You know, do you answer it on your headphones? Do you answer it on the radio? Do you answer it on the steering column? Where do you answer the phone? And And then you try to tell her where to answer it. And the pressure just mounts. I wasn't going to tell them it was you. (laughs) It's such a simple thing. But come on. It happens all the time especially in our high-tech world, 
uh, things just happen and we don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to handle them. We don't know where to go with them. Sometimes my day is kind of like the day that Alexander had in his book, or in Judith Vior's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Have you ever remember? You remember that book? Oh, yeah, Beth remembers that book. You read it all the time. It's about a boy who's seven or eight years old, and he has this unbelievably stressful day. On one page, he says in one breath, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair, and when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I've had some of those days. And the things went on the whole day in the book like this. And then it came to the, comes to the evening. And he says, there were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. And when I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I think I'll move to Australia. <laughs> had days like that. Some of you say, I had a year like that. You know, that we just got through. Uh, but we all face stress and pressure at times. But the thing is, is that although Jesus' pressures weren't like this, he never had to figure out where to answer the phone. He never got his gum in his hair. Didn't ever trip on a skateboard. But I want us to look at some of his secrets for living under the pressure he lived under. We could learn from them. What kind of pressure was he under? Well, you know, Jesus had a lot of people who didn't like him. He was under a lot of pressure all the time from his enemies. Some of the things he did, his enemies despised. They, they were good things. But his enemies despised them and they attacked him for it. They wanted to kill him for a couple of them. For example, you know, Mark talks about these in Mark chapter 2, verse 7. He healed a paralytic and the, sad, the disciples got upset. Not the disciples. The Pharisees got upset. In Mark 2.16, he associated with sinners. And the people were saying, this guy associates with sinners. He goes to their parties. He sits around and talks to sinners. In Mark 2.24, he ate grain on the Sabbath. And those religious folks said, you can't work on the Sabbath. All he did was pick a few grains of uh, wheat ground them, blew the chaff away, ate them, and they said, well, that's working. And they got upset with him. And then later on in chapter 3, he healed on the Sabbath. And then they were under the accusations that his disciples didn't fast enough. They ate too much. They ate too often. They partied too much. And finally, in chapter 3 and verse 6, the religious leaders wanted him destroyed. And so Jesus was under this pressure all the time in his ministry. He was under this pressure from those who wanted to destroy him. 
who wanted to kill him and eventually did crucify him. And he was always under that pressure. But that wasn't all. He was also pressured by his friends. It came from his popularity. In the passage that we just read, that's what's happened here. It was chaotic. Luke's description of one episode that we just looked at is characteristic. It says, meanwhile, this was the passage we read a minute ago. No, this is out of Luke. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, they were trampling on one another. There was such a crowd that they were trampling all over one another. After a time away to the mountains, Jesus came home and the crowds gathered once again so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. There were so many people, so many friends, so many admirers that came around him that he couldn't even get a chance to eat. And then the passage that we read, Mark 3, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed. And also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Now, if you look at that, if you look at a map of Israel and you look at these places, people were coming from Galilee, which was to the west of where Jesus was. People were coming to him from the south from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Some of those places are over 100 miles away from where Jesus was at. They were coming from the east, beyond the Jordan. They were coming across the Jordan River or around the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus where he was at, some 60 miles or so. And then it says, they also came from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Tyre is 25 to 30 miles north of where Jesus was. Sidon is 40 miles north of where Jesus was. And these people all said, I've come all this way to see Jesus, and I'm going to see him. That was their mentality. And they were pushing. They were pushing forward. In that verse, I said, keep your mind on it. They were pressed around him in order to touch him. The, the, the Greek that's written there actually says, they were falling on Jesus in order to touch him. He was that pressed. So he was under this pressure from his friends and those who, who sought him. And why did these thousands of people seem, seek him? What made him so attractive? Well, it's clear when you read these passages, you read the first passages of Mark, they had heard about what he was doing. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. Uh, other passages inform us that people were following Jesus just in order to see him do a miracle. People were following Jesus because when they got there, sometimes he fed them like he did the 5,000 and then later on the 4,000. They were there to listen to his teaching. He was a prophet. He taught like a prophet. They, were having, they wanted him to settle disputes. You know, there were some who came, and if you look and you read through there, that they asked him you know, to, to settle disputes among themselves. They wanted to just talk with him in social settings. Art, in Luke 18, he came to seek the way for eternal life. They, and that's why people were coming to Jesus, and they were coming around him, and those who sought him. You know, we've already seen that most of the religious leaders sought him for ill will. His own relatives 
came to take custody of him and take him home, thinking he was uh, mad. Uh, and then there were those who sought after Jesus for good reasons in, in the Christmas story. The, the Magi and the shepherds pursued Jesus in order to worship him. In John 3, Nicodemus called to Jesus because he needed answers to how to be born again. And the Samaritans came to him because they were desirous of being sure that they could have eternal life as well. All kinds of people sought Jesus. It, it, it uh, accumulates, it culminates on his ride in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday when, when the people just gathered around as he came in to Jerusalem. I guess you could say that Jesus was the people's choice. Whether they were good people or bad people, they, he was their choice. He wanted them for some reason or another. So how did Jesus handle it? How did Jesus handle that kind of pressure? Well, in verse 7, the first thing that we can see is that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now, a bunch of folks followed him, but Jesus wanted to get away from it all. He wanted to spend time by himself, spend time alone. And sometimes he was able to spend some time alone. In Luke 6, 12, it says, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Other times he got away and he went with his disciples. After healing a man's hand, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the, to the Sea of Galilee. That was the passage that we read this morning. Sometimes we need to get away. Amen? Sometimes we need to get away. I don't have time to get away. I hear you saying that. Jesus felt the same way. He didn't have time either. But he made the effort, and occasionally... He succeeded. So how do we get away? How do we find time to, to get away? When I was uh, in the pressure of, of the pastorate, I'm not saying that you guys don't have any pressure, but you guys don't pressure me. Uh, you're blessed to serve. But there were a few churches that I was pressed all the time for one thing or another. And, and, and there was just some tricks I had to use to get time alone. Like in, in a couple of the churches, the two of the churches, where the pressure was the worst, I built behind my church office just a, a study, a pastor's study. And nobody was allowed to go in that room but me. And I had a gatekeeper who kept everybody out of that room. Uh, she was or they whoever she was at the time they were allowed to check to see if I would talk to somebody but if, they, if she saw me praying or reading my bible or whatever that she didn't come in or taking a nap on the couch or whatever I was doing <laughs> she, wouldn't, she wouldn't let folks in you just have to get away uh, sometimes Jennifer and I now, especially with my back the way it is, we, we just stop in the car. The other day, we, 
We stopped in Monticello in the park. We were just going to get out and take a walk. But the wind was blowing so bad we didn't get very far from the car before we got back in. Uh, but, you know, just, just get away. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. You don't have to uh, just, you know, take a walk. Get up a little bit earlier. Take advantage of downtime. Uh, just do something. If I want to be more like Jesus, I need to carve out time just for me. The second thing about Jesus is in carving out that time, he took time to pray. In the verses preceding our text, there was a tense situation in the synagogue. That's what this is all about in verses 1 through 6. And uh, earlier in Mark, we see him going to a solitary place where he prayed. 135 says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. What kind of things can we pray for? Do you think you could take... And, and take to Jesus the little things that bother you, the little things that are pressuring you, and, and pray about those things and take those before the Lord. I remember reading about a, a uh, steel worker. His name was Randy Reed. And uh, he was welding. He was a welder. And he was near the top of an almost completed water tower in South Chicago, and he needed some supplies, but from where he was stood and, and hooked in to the, to the structure, he couldn't quite reach them. And so he unhooked his safety belt and leaned from his scaffolding over so he could grab those, just those few items. But when he shifted his weight on the scaffolding, the scaffolding tilted and dumped him, and he fell 110 feet and landed on a pile of dirt. He tried to catch himself, tried to land with his legs, but he just landed on a pile of dirt. Well, somebody called 9-11, obviously, immediately, and the other construction workers rushed to his side, and when they got there, he was still alive, miraculously. He, he was still alive. And they strapped him on a backboard, and, and the paramedics picked him up and started rushing him towards their ambulance. And as they went, Randy opened his eyes, and he looked at his stretcher carriers and said, Please don't drop me. <laughs> Is that crazy or what? I just think that's absolutely hilarious. He just survived to fall of 110 feet. And now he was afraid he was going to be dropped a couple of feet by paramedics. And miraculously, you know, he, he only suffered a few bruised ribs. That's all, that was all that happened. But, you know, in a lot of ways, we're just like Randy Reed. We trust God with our eternity. We're all trusting God with the big thing, right? You're trusting that when you die, God will take you home to heaven that he's forgiven you of your sins. But sometimes when it comes to the small matters of life, we worry that God might drop us. He's going to get us to heaven. But between here and there, he may drop us somewhere. 
Jesus never felt that way. He always began to pray. One of the hymn writers wrote, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I want to be more like Jesus. I need to remember to take time to pray for those little things. And then another thing that he did is he involved other people in his pressures. He took measures to cope with people pressures by involving his disciples in them, by delegating some of the things to others. You know, it can easily be missed in that passage we read. As a matter of fact, I ought to give you a quiz. Does anybody remember what he told his disciples to do? In the passage I read, I read it twice. He told his disciples to get a boat ready. He said, you guys, get a boat ready just in case this gets out of control as these people are falling on us. Uh, you know, there are some things we can just trust others to do for us who may be able to do them better. Uh, we need to let other people uh, handle some of the, the difficulties for us. I've got something like this working today. I, I was having on, on Friday, it was, it was Friday, I was having so much trouble getting up out of a chair that uh, I just decided I didn't want to sit down because it's so much trouble to get back up. And uh, I remembered when we had Jennifer's mom, we had borrowed a, a recliner, that one of those sitting you up recliners. And I said, that, you know, that belonged to my brother, Jesse, or it belonged to his mother-in-law who used it until she passed away and they had it and so I just called Jesse and I said hey is that still around and and is it available to be borrowed and he said well mom has it right now in her living room but she don't like it so I'm sure she would be glad if you got it out of there so I said okay we'll figure something out and Jennifer and I started thinking okay how can we go down and get it you know we got to go down and get it somebody has there has to load it for us because I can't pick up anything that weighs more than a gallon of milk and when we get home somebody has to unload it for us and I thought you know maybe I get a couple of you guys I have a friend that lives out by us uh, we have a son-in-law that could give us a hand and so we started working out the logistics and uh, Earlier in the day, my neighbor who lives, who lives in Farmington and lives, works on the other side of the road or has a home on the other side of the road, had called, heard texted me, said, we're coming up Sunday, can we bring anything for you? Well, you know, I was thinking about stopping by Walmart or stopping by Sam's Club or, you know, something like that. And I was talking to Jennifer, he says, why don't you ask Tom to bring the chair? I said, oh, man, that's a lot of trouble to ask somebody you really don't know that well to go to another town and get a chair and bring it to you. And 
I, I wasn't going to do it. And then I remembered point three in my sermon. Do you know how much pressure it took off of us in our week to give Tom a call and say, hey, could you get that for me? And he's going to my mom's house at, at noon today and pick it up and bring it up here to, to us. You know, that, that's a blessing. But it just reduced pressure. Uh, and that's Jesus did that all the time. He involved others. I want to be more like Jesus. I need to learn to depend on others. I need to quit being so self-sufficient and let Jesus teach me how to get other people to help. And then the fourth thing, he was concerned only with what could be controlled. You know, there were some things that Jesus knew he didn't have any business messing with. In the next few verses after the passage that we read, we learn that a lot of people came to Jesus to have demons cast out. It says, uh, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell anybody that. Hey, don't be telling everybody that. He tells us that whenever those unclean spirits saw him and they cried out, you are the son of God, Jesus rebuked them and asked them to keep still. This, this isn't the time for letting people know that I'm the son of God. The demons know that he's the son of God, but everybody else doesn't know yet that he's the son of God. And rather than have the demons announce him as the son of God, Jesus wanted his words and deeds to demonstrate his messianic purpose. He didn't want people to get out of order in what they were doing. And he had the power to control those spirits. He had the power to cast them out, and at one point he did. But when something about tension, tension production takes place, some of it we can control. Then we need to do something. But if there are things that we can't handle, if there are things that are out of our control, if there are things that are out of our, what do we call it, out of our job description, we should learn how to just let them go. Jesus did. We can't always control them. But we can control what we allow to take root. We may not be un, un, able, to un, able to control the people who are clamoring for our time. But we can be in charge of how much we respond. So that's another measure we can take. Control what can be controlled. You know, there's, there's two ways to handle pressure. One is illustrated by a bathysphere. I don't know if you've ever seen one. There's, you can just write that word in on Google and look it up, and they'll show you all kinds of neat pictures of bathyspheres. It's a miniature submarine used to explore the oceans in places so deep that it would crush an ordinary submarine. Just crush it like a hum, uh, aluminum can. And the way that the bathyspheres compensate for that is they put steel plate on them, several inches thick. And that keeps the water out, keeps the air in, but it also makes them heavy and hard to maneuver. They have to be maneuvered from another boat. Uh, they have to be lowered down and lifted up from a surface boat and they can 
move around a little bit on the, on the bottom of the ocean as they're exploring the ocean on the bottom. And inside, you know, all the ones I looked at, there were only two people. That's about as many as could get into one of those. Uh, but when they get to the ocean floor and they're looking out through that plate glass that uh, keeps the pressure out as well and they turn their lights on to look at the ocean floor, you know what they see down there? Fish. Fish. There are fish swimming down at the bottom of the ocean under pressure that is so dense that it would crush a submarine because they cope with the pressure in an entirely different way. They don't build thick skins. They compensate for the outside pressure through equal and opposite pressure inside themselves. In other words, they live through the pressure. They don't fight it. And Christians can do the same thing. We can grow to be hard and thick-skinned. But I think if we would learn how to appropriate God's power within us, God's power would equal the pressure that comes from the outside. And we'd be able to handle the pressures that we face, like Jesus handled the pressures that he faced. Well, Jesus took measures to reduce the people in his life, yet he didn't stop giving people hope through his teaching and his acts of kindness. Jesus loved people and gave them hope whenever he could. So I encourage you to be more like Jesus. Be more like Jesus. Draw out the best in others by saying something affirming to someone today. You do that. Think of just one person and say something affirming to them. When I was in the hospital, uh, and this time it was on my own initiative, not because I was drugged up, I tried to remember to say something affirming to every person who came into my room to do something for me. Um, every person. And I think it makes a difference in a person's life when they're working hard or when they're serving hard for you to say something affirming, something positive to them. And Jesus was so kind to so many people because in his own words he said, I have come to serve. That kindest act of all that Jesus did was when he gave his life for us. Amen? I hope that's helpful. Maybe you don't feel any pressure. Maybe it's just me. But uh, hopefully that will help you understand some of the ways we can respond and become more like Jesus. More like Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father.